The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is August 21st, 2019, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the United States Army Heritage and Education Center and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. The USAC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. In addition, we would like to extend a warm thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation for their support in everything we do here at the AHEC. The book for tonight's lecture is on sale in the gift shop and behind uh, the room here as you walked in you saw it. All proceeds from the book sale go to support our foundation uh, and the hard work they do. We will also have a book signing at the end of the lecture, so please stick around for that. Uh, now tonight, uh, we're going to go a little bit off script here. We have a very special treat. The chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College, Dr. Mark Duckenfield, is going to be our guest introducer uh, for tonight's speaker. So Dr. Duckenfield, if you'll come on up. Thank you very much, Carl. Um, it's a, a real pleasure to be able to introduce um, Dr. Moise, um, because perhaps unbeknownst to him, he was one of the people who encouraged me um, or inspired me to pursue a career in academia. It uh, goes back to when I was 13 years old, uh, living in Clemson, and my parents took me to a debate hosted by the history department on whether free elections were the best way to organize governments. And the history department um, had people dressed in costumes. Uh, Elizabeth Carney was Pericles, Bob Lambert was um, Jefferson, and Ed Moise was um, Karl Marx. <laughs> and I, I remember it vividly. Uh, it, uh, it was a fantastic experience for a 13-year-old, and I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. This is what history professors get to do. And um, it was one of the things that uh, in inspired me ever since. So it's a, a real pleasure, and I don't think in the intervening 35 years I've had a chance to thank you for that, but You're I'd, welcome. Like, I'd like to take this opportunity. So Dr. Edwin Moise is a professor of history at Clemson University. He earned his BA in history from Harvard University and his MA in Southeast Asian Studies and a PhD in history from the University of Michigan. He's published multiple books on the Vietnam War and other Asian uh, topics, including a textbook on modern Chinese history in 2013, the A to Z of the Vietnam War in 2015, the myths of Tet, the most misunderstood event of the Vietnam War in 2017. He began his academic career as a political and economic historian of China and Vietnam, but has recently specialized in the Vietnam War, and he's spoken for numerous universities, societies, and museums over the past 20 years. He also has on his website, um, as Dr. Jones in my department reminded me, an extraordinarily valuable resource on the Vietnam War that scholars across the country and indeed across the world use. So ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming Dr. Edwin Moise. Thank you. In 1964, the Vietnam War was not yet the huge conflict it would become a few years later. Some US government personnel were flying helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft in combat. Others were training and, in some cases, commanding and leading local troops in combat. But the scale of all of this was small enough so the US government could pretend that the Americans were only there to teach the Vietnamese how to do it not to do the work for them. What the Americans were doing was clearly not enough. The South Vietnamese guerrillas, known as the Viet Cong, backed by North Vietnam, were winning the war. Top US officials were discussing the question of introducing large-scale US combat forces to turn this situation around 
probably starting with bombing North Vietnam, but all they could get President Lyndon Johnson to approve was a program of small covert raids against North Vietnam. Opland 34A. Uh, these raids were small enough in scale that they could not reasonably have been expected to have much impact. There was something top officials did so they would be able to tell themselves they were doing something while they tried to make up their minds to do something big enough to matter. The Opland 34A raids did, however, create a very tense situation along the North Vietnamese coast. On the night of July 30th, Opland 34A raiders shelled the island of Hun Mea near North Vietnam. The following morning, a U.S. Navy destroyer, the Maddox, began a DeSoto patrol, a reconnaissance mission, along the North Vietnamese coast. When the Maddox approached Hun Mea, the North Vietnamese became very agitated and sent three torpedo boats into the area. On August 2nd, the three torpedo boats attacked the Maddox. The attack failed. All three torpedo boats were damaged, and one was almost sunk. This was the first of the two famous Tonkin Gulf incidents. The DeSoto patrol resumed on August 3rd with a second destroyer added. On the night of August 4th, the Maddox and the Turner Joy experienced what seemed to be another torpedo boat attack. This was the second Tonkin Gulf incident. The destroyers fired targets appearing on their radar. American aircraft fired rockets and guns at locations where the destroyers reported radar targets. The Turner Joy claimed to have sunk two torpedo boats. The following day, the United States bombed North Vietnam in retaliation for the reported attack. On August 7th, both houses of Congress passed almost unanimously what is often called the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, giving President Johnson the authority to take, quote, all necessary steps, including the use of armed force, end quote, to deal with problems in the area. During the August 4th incident, almost all the officers and men on the two destroyers believed themselves under attack. But less than an hour after the shooting stopped, the on-scene commander, Captain John Herrick, reported, quote, Review of action makes many reported contacts and torpedoes fired appear doubtful. Freak weather effects on radar and overeager sonarmen may have accounted for many reports. No actual visual sightings by Maddox suggest complete evaluation before any further action taken. Decades later, I interviewed about 20 Americans who'd been present that night, either on the destroyers or in the aircraft overhead. By that time, there were more of them who doubted that there had been an actual attack than believed in it. But the ones who believed in it were more sure of it. So if you factored in degree of assurance, you could say that the eyewitnesses were split right down the middle on this rather fundamental question. When I looked at all the other forms of evidence, the most important being the records of the destroyers, and what was written down at the time did not always match what people remembered 20 years later. Interrogation reports from the interrogation of North Vietnamese torpedo boat personnel captured later in the war, and the signals intelligence, SIGINT. Put it all together, it was unmistakable. There had been no North Vietnamese attack on the two destroyers that night. The Americans had been alone in the middle of the Gulf of Tonkin. The most interesting of the other forms of information is the signals intelligence. In 2005 and 2006, the National Security Agency, NSA, in an action very surprising for what is usually a very secretive agency, declassified most of its files on the Tonkin Gulf incidents. The intercepted North Vietnamese messages showed no indication of a battle on the night of August 4th. No orders for an attack against the American destroyers. No indication that the North Vietnamese had any idea where the destroyers were that night. No after-action reports. No inquiries about the fate of missing or damaged vessels. And the Americans thought they'd sunk two torpedo boats, so there should have been some inquiries about the fate of missing or damaged vessels. The absence of evidence was so complete that it really was strong evidence of absence. Yet in the immediate aftermath of the incident, the SIGINT 
was treated as having confirmed the reality of the attack. It persuaded top officials that the incident had been real after Captain Herrick had reported his doubts about it. How did that happen? Part of the problem was that senior officers and officials were looking at the intercept reports, which they did not have the background to understand, searching for a smoking gun. They did not consult intelligence analysts about the intercepts. But part of the problem was that the analysts did not understand the intercepts nearly as well as we would normally assume intelligence analysts would. It would have been much harder to ignore the analysts if they had been able to present a coherent and detailed interpretation of the intercepts. This was by far the most interesting thing to me in the information that NSA released in 2005 and 2006. I had expected it would show that there was no good evidence of an attack on August 4th. But I was dumbfounded to realize what it showed about the Americans' inability to understand intercepted North Vietnamese radio messages. This was not a matter of incompetence. You're not going to hear me suggest I could have done better if I had been one of those analysts. The issue was simply that the United States had not been listening to the North Vietnamese radio traffic, or North Vietnamese Navy radio traffic, for very long. And the traffic we had been hearing was not particularly informative. So the Americans involved simply had not learned much about the North Vietnamese Navy. Uh, this was not a position remotely. Somebody has said that by the late stages of World War II, all of the people who had the most complete understanding of the organizational structure of the German armed forces were in England. None of them were in Germany. Uh, it may or may not be true, but not a, such a situation here. President Lyndon Johnson and his staff would have been exceptionally unqualified to interpret the intercept reports they were getting, since this was the first crisis in which the Johnson White House had attempted to make direct use of, use of SIGINT. But senior military officers who did have some background reading SIGINT did not do much better. As it happens, we have a transcript of the conversation in which Admiral Ulysses S.G. Sharp, Commander-in-Chief Pacific, and Lieutenant General David Birchnell, Director of the Joint Staff in the Pentagon, agreed that the SIGINT confirmed the reality of the August 4th attack. Their crucial evidence started with two North Vietnamese Navy messages that an American listening station at San Miguel in the Philippines picked up during the supposed battle on the night of August 4th. One of them mentioned two comrades having been sacrificed. San Miguel's initial reports on the two intercepts read, Swatow class PGM T-142 reported to Meduk at 051550Z. This was a typo for 041550Z. Uh, that we shot at two enemy airplanes and at least one was damaged. We sacrificed two comrades, but all are brave and recognize our obligation. At 041554Z, Swatow class PGM T-142 reported to Meduk that an enemy aircraft was observed falling into the sea, enemy vessel perhaps wounded. A later report added one more sentence at the end of the second message, report this news to the mobilized unit. These reports were not very clear. A few hours after they came in from San Miguel, an analyst at NSA headquarters at Fort Meade decided that the two intercepts were actually two parts of a single message. I believe he was correct. They were two parts of a single message. He produced a new translation in which the two were combined. From Tra to Lop. After the 135 had already started to report to you, we shot down two enemy planes in the battle area and one other plane was damaged. We sacrificed two ships and all the rest are okay. The combat spirit is very high and we are starting out on the hunt and are waiting to receive assignment. Men are very confident because they themselves saw the enemy planes sink. The enemy ship could also have been damaged. Report this information back to the unit to mobilize them. Not quite two hours after that, Admiral Sharp spoke with General Bir Birchnell by phone. Both had seen the report from San Miguel, but only Sharp had seen the somewhat different report from NSA headquarters. 
They did not realize the two reports were based on the same intercepted message, because while San Miguel had translated the reference to sacrifice of two comrades correctly, the analyst at NSA headquarters had supposed mistakenly that this might refer to the loss of two vessels. But the really serious problem was that the time Sharp associated with the message was the time NSA had issued its report, which I have highlighted in blue in the transcript, and also highlighted in blue in the NSA report. This was the time that NSA had issued its report, which was almost three hours after the end of the shooting in the Gulf of Tonkin, which made sense as a time for an after-action report. Uh, they did, Sharp did not notice the time I have highlighted in red in the NSA report, which is the time the North Vietnamese message had been written, which is right in the middle of the two-hour supposed battle in the Gulf of Tonkin. If a battle had actually been occurring as the Americans believed, no Vietnamese officer would have been in a position to know at so early an hour what the losses had been on both sides. And in particular, with the shooting with still almost a, an hour to go, it would have been a little early to say, everybody else is OK. Uh, also, the message clearly seemed to report, be reporting the results of some battle that was over and said the men involved were waiting for their next assignment. The message was, in fact, describing not a battle going on at the time it was sent, but the battle two days before, when the three torpedo boats had attacked the Maddox. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara also discussed these intercept reports with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy probably discussed them with President Johnson, but I do not have transcripts of those conversations. I know the White House got the intercept reports. When I first began requesting intercept reports under the Freedom of Information Act, the copies in the White House files turned out to be a lot more legible than the copies I got from NSA. As I remarked before, the American SIGINT organizations did not clearly understand everything they saw in intercepted messages. I'm not going to try to distinguish personnel in those organizations designated as Vietnamese linguists, translators, from those designated as intelligence analysts. I don't know who was who. I'm just going to lump them all together and call them all analysts. The Americans had only been seriously trying to listen to the North Vietnamese Navy for a few months. As I said before, the message traffic they'd been picking up had not been very revealing. They hadn't gotten a clear picture of the organizational structure of the People's Navy, its personnel, even its terminology. For the next few minutes, I'm going to focus mainly on the genuine battle of August 2nd. Uh, the fact that the August 4th incident was imaginary adds a level of confusion which would not help. Uh, the Americans were not familiar with the terms the People's Navy used for certain classes of vessels. Before August 1964, the People's Navy had never fought a battle in which a destroyer or a torpedo boat had participated. So there had been little reason for either ship type to be mentioned in its communications. In August, when the North Vietnamese began using the term destroyer in reference to the Maddox, some American analysts understood it, but some did not. One analyst, not recognizing Kutrukham as a term for destroyer, translated it literally as attack vessel. I think Kutrukham was probably the Vietnamese term that another analyst translated assault vessel, but I don't have the Vietnamese text of that one. Even in messages referring to the August 2nd incident, in which three torpedo boats participated, the Vietnamese hardly ever used the phrase torpedo boat. They just referred to vessels by number, confident that the recipients would recognize the number of a torpedo boat when they saw it. The first time an intercepted message used any term for torpedo boat, which happened to be one of the most important intercepted messages in this whole affair, no American analyst seemed to have recognized the term. On August 2nd, 1964, the destroyer Maddox was about 200 miles north of the demilitarized zone, separating north from South Vietnam. The coastal defense forces were very tense. They appeared to have believed that the Maddox was involved in Opland 34A attacks against North Vietnam. 
The People's Navy had sent three torpedo boats into the area, vessels 333, 336, and 339. Torpedo boats were the only vessels the People's Navy had with weapons even marginally adequate for an attack on a destroyer, but they had very weak radios. Two patrol gunboats, 142 and 146, of the class the Americans called Swatow boats, also were there. They had no weapons capable of threatening a destroyer, but they had good communications gear. They relayed radio messages to and from the torpedo boats. The People's Navy was considering an attack on the Maddox. That was why the torpedo boats had been sent. But before the high command could make a final decision to attack, a political officer named Leitu Lop at a local command center that the Americans called Miduk on the coast a little north of Honmea uh, jumped the gun. Lop sent an attack order to a Swatow boat officer named Trundin Chi. Chi passed the order to Lezgui Huai, commander of torpedo boat squadron 135, and Huai then took his torpedo boats out to attack the Maddox. The Americans did not intercept the attack order, but they did intercept a message Chi sent back to Lop, summarizing the order. Chi may have been checking to make sure he understood the message. The clearest American translation read, have received order and the T-146 and T-142 have come down rising at fast speed and are to go parallel to the enemy and to launch torpedoes. This made no sense at all. 142 and 146 were Swatow boats, gunboats. They could not launch torpedoes because they had no torpedoes to launch. There had to be a translation error involved, and there was, in fact, a likely one. The Vietnamese terms for a torpedo boat, Tau Phong Loi or Tau Phong Loi, either of which could be translated literally as boat-launched torpedoes, were sometimes abbreviated Phong Loi, which could be literally translated just as launched torpedoes. She actually had, had said Swatow boats 142 and 146 would go together with the Phong Loi, together with the torpedo boats. The Americans thought he was saying 142 and 146 would Phong Loi, would launch torpedoes. In the event, Chi's Swatow boats were unable to go together with the torpedo boats. When Huai and his three torpedo boats went out after the Maddox, they did so at very high speed, and the slower Swatow boats couldn't keep up. Initially, analysts at the main American intercept site, San Miguel in the Philippines, identified the three torpedo boats that had attacked the Maddox on August 2nd as ah, oh, that's got it. 140, as 142, 146, and 135. None of those is even the number of a torpedo boat. Uh, this was not unreasonable. Chi's message to Lop, both as Chi actually meant it as the Americans mistranslated it, had clearly indicated that 142 and 146 were supposed to participate in the attack. They just couldn't because they were too slow. And Vietnamese officers habitually wrote just 135 in messages when what they meant was the vessels of Squadron 135 that are in this area. The number 135 looked like the designator for an individual vessel if you did not know it was actually a squadron. Not until two days later did American analysts figure out that the attackers had been 333, 336, and 339, that all three belonged to a unit designated 135. And even then, the Americans had no way to guess that 135 was the whole, all the torpedo boats in the North Vietnamese Navy, not just the three that happened to be in that area. The People's Navy was a small enough organization that its officers mostly knew one another by name, and they used personal names a lot in radio communications. American analysts knew little about those officers. Well, consider Captain Herrick, the American on-scene commander. Captain Herrick's radio messages all identify him. This is from Commander Task Group 72.1. If he'd been in the People's Navy, he'd have signed his radio messages, John. This is not so helpful if you're an intelligence analyst reading an intercepted message. Let us consider the three Vietnamese who had played key roles in sending the torpedo boats to attack the Maddox. Lop and Chi signed numerous intercepted message, messages. Quai signed a few. No American intercept reported, report even speculated as to the identity of any of them. 
Some American reports on intercepts did not even bother to mention that some named individual had signed them because the names would have seemed so meaningless. The analyst surely guessed that she commanded one or more Swatel boats, but officially he was just a, quote, unidentified personality. It is much less likely that any analyst guessed that Kwai was a commander of torpedo boats. The fact that Kwai's radio traffic was handled by the radio operator of Swatow 142 because the radios on Kwai's torpedo boats were so inadequate would not have helped matters. Lopp posed a worse problem. There was no way for American analysts to guess that he was a political officer, but for most part, they did not even realize he was at Meduk. The most persistent problem in okay, Meduk, the most persistent problem in American understanding of radio messages is oh, oh, sorry, Meduk is that almost all American intercept reports of radio traffic from Meduk say it was from Port Walut far to the northeast, Port Wallet. Uh, even when Meduk reported American airstrikes in its vicinity on the afternoon of August 5th during the American retaliation, and then reported the recovery of the body of an American pilot shot down in one of those strikes, the American reports described these events as having happened in Port Wallet. At least one an American analyst noticed that this made no sense since there had been no airstrikes anywhere near Port Walut. It had been taken off the target list because it was uncomfortably close to China. Uh, but he could only conjecture that a message originally sent by some other location had been relayed by Port Walut. None of this should be regarded as surprising or shocking. As I say, the Americans simply had not had the opportunity to learn the things they would have needed to learn in order to get more information out of these reports. What is surprising is that at the crucial moment for the Maddox, the things the Americans didn't know didn't matter. When they intercepted Chi's message to Lop on August 2nd, they were vague on Chi's identity. They had no idea at all who Lop might have been, and they mistranslated the text of the message. But they did figure out that it was about a torpedo attack. The Maddox was the only possible target for a torpedo back attack anywhere in the area, so they sent a warning to the Maddox, and the Maddox did considerably better when the attack came than it would have done without a couple of hours' warning that was coming. So you can get lucky. But back in Washington, the fact that the analysts did not know much about the People's Navy may have discouraged senior officers and officials who knew even less from consulting the analysts. I want to shift now to a completely different issue, the broader policy issue, how Tonkin Gulf fits into the pattern of escalation of the Vietnam War. Tonkin Gulf did not really cause escalation of the Vietnam War. The Johnson administration had already been planning escalation before the incidents. It was generally agreed among national security officials that the communists were winning the war in South Vietnam. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara was especially pessimistic. He told the National Security Council as early as May 1964, quote, where our proposals are being carried out now, the situation is still going to hell. We are continuing to lose. Nothing we are now doing will win. That's pretty clear. Uh, it was generally agreed that a communist victory in South Vietnam would be a disaster for the United States and the world. There was widespread acceptance of the domino theory which said that if South Vietnam fell, a string of other countries, including countries not even bothering on, bordering on Vietnam, would soon fall also. President Johnson also believed that a communist victory in Vietnam would be a disaster for him as an individual in American politics. It was generally agreed that turning this situation around would require a major commitment of American military force, probably starting with an air campaign against North Vietnam. Johnson was running as the peace candidate in the presidential election of 1964. The Republican candidate, Barry Goldwater, was a strident hawk, and Johnson was selling himself to the voters as a man much less likely than Goldwater to get the United States into a war. He had made it clear to top officials that he did not want any major escalation before the election. The White House quietly asked Ray Klein, 
the CIA is deputy director for intelligence, whether they could afford to wait that long. Would Vietnam already be irretrievably lost if they waited until after the election? Klein's evaluation was that it would barely be possible to put off a major increase in the US effort after, until after the election. He later remembered having said, basically, you're going to have your back to the wall. Johnson thought he was probably going to escalate the war after the election, and he wanted to get the Congress to pass a resolution authorizing American military action. Officials had drafted such a resolution in May, but they did not want to tell the Congress when asking for this blank check for war that the reason they wanted it was that they were planning to escalate the war. They needed some other excuse. When the first reports reached Washington on August 4th that the North Vietnamese were attacking the two destroyers, President Johnson decided this was his perfect opportunity. The administration told members of the House and the Senate that the resolution was not a step toward escalation of the war, but simply a response to a brazen challenge by the North Vietnamese, who had sent torpedo boats far out to sea to attack US naval vessels. Stuart Symington, the only senator who sat on both the Foreign Relations Committee and the Armed Services Committee, said the resolution was about, quote, a relatively simple matter whether the United States accepts an attack on one of its ships 65 miles offshore or should defend itself against this clearly planned aggression. William Fulbright, who is chair of the Foreign Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was the chief spokesman for the resolution in the Senate, acknowledged during the debate that the resolution could be used as authorization for the United States, in effect, to go to war in Vietnam but said he was not worried about that possibility because everything he had heard indicated that President Johnson did not intend to use it for any such purpose. The resolution passed almost unanimously. The, what is ironic is that President Johnson did not want to escalate the Vietnam War. He thought a communist victory would be a disaster, but he also thought escalation would be a disaster. He had no faith that it would work well militarily, and even if it worked, it would certainly cost a great deal of money that he believed was badly needed for domestic purposes. He was cutting the military budget, cutting it pretty seriously to free up money for his domestic policies. Military spending had always been at least 46% of the total federal budget under Kennedy. Johnson, with remarkable speed after he became president, dropped it to less than 42%. That's quite a cut in less than two years, especially if you're on the road to war. One reason Johnson sounded so convincing when he spoke during the presidential campaign about not taking the United States to war was that he so much wished it were true. From his viewpoint, the only tolerable path in Vietnam would be to strengthen the South Vietnamese government enough so it would be able to defend itself without the help of large American combat forces. His advisors told them this was not likely to happen, but they could not explain clearly why it was impossible. So he kept getting, telling them they needed to go on trying a little longer. Promptly after the congressional vote on the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, Johnson's top advisors, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the National Security Advisor, began discussing what they should do with the blank check they had been given. Within a week, they agreed to a tentative date of January 1st to begin systematic US bombing of North Vietnam. But they did not get Johnson's agreement to that. On December 3rd, after Johnson had won the presidential election by a wide margin, they got his agreement that the US would at least carry out a one-time retaliatory airstrike, like the one that had followed the August 4th incident, the next time the Viet Cong carried out some conspicuous attack that could be cited as provocation. The attack did not need to be very conspicuous. A Viet Cong attack on a district capital would be enough. But when the next month brought not just one such incident, but three, each involving American fatalities, and there had been nothing about American fatalities being required to provoke retaliation in the supposed decision of December 3rd, Johnson did not bomb North Vietnam for any of the three. One of them, the Battle of Binh Gia, not far east of Saigon, was a devastating defeat for the South Vietnamese government forces, much worse than the more famous Battle of Ap Bac two years earlier. 
Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy realized that when Johnson told them in December that he had decided to bomb North Vietnam, he had only been placating them, telling them what they wanted to hear, and had not actually reached such a decision. In late January, they went back to him and told him he must either make up his mind to begin bombing North Vietnam promptly or give up any hope of any good outcome in the war. At this point, they finally convinced him to abandon his hope that communist victory could be avoided without large-scale US combat action. The escalation got started in February and March. The Tonkin Gulf incidents were tremendously convenient for Lyndon Johnson. They looked good to the American public and probably widened the margin by which he won the 64 presidential election, although he'd have won it anyway. But they were good for some more votes. They gave him the congressional resolution he wanted. They were so convenient that John Herrick, the American on-scene commander who'd been aboard the Maddox, asked me to look into the possibility that he had been the victim of a US government conspiracy, that Americans under White House orders had been out there in the dark with some sort of high-tech equipment to generate the false radar images that it made him think that the Maddox and the Turner Joy were under attack that night. I considered the matter very carefully, and I told Herrick, didn't happen. No way. Uh, that would make a very interesting story. But frankly, I find the actual story that the United States was making an honest mistake when it bombed North Vietnam in retaliation for a completely imaginary attack on US ships under a president who used it as an excuse for escalation but didn't want to. That's a more complicated and a more interesting story. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of time for question and answer. So uh, if uh, we've got anybody who'd like to start us off, we'll start over here. Who ordered the Maddox 65 miles off the coast of North Vietnam? Uh, it came down the chain of command. Uh, the, the decision was made by, I don't know who in particular, in Washington. Uh, and it came down, the, came, came down the chain of command. And it was not ordered the Maddox 65 miles off the coast of North Vietnam. The Maddox's orders said uh, closest approach eight miles to the North Vietnamese coast, four miles to North Vietnamese islands. Uh, and For what purpose? Uh, I believe it was genuinely a reconnaissance mission uh, that they wanted more information about the situation along the North Vietnamese coast. Uh, they, after this, the purpose of patrols like that off the North, North Vietnamese coast shifted. And if one of them gets in trouble, that makes a great excuse to retaliate became very high in the mines. And for months after Tonkin Gulf, they were talking about, if we want a good excuse for, for bombing North Vietnam, a DeSoto mission off the North Vietnamese coast might give us one. But I do not believe that was involved for the August DeSoto patrol, because they were not ready to retaliate. When the, when the report came, of an attack on the Maddox came in, it was a Chinese fire drill of the Americans frantically trying to get ready to bomb North Vietnam when no preparations had been made to get them ready to do so. I gather you believe that the second uh, attack did not occur, but yep. you do believe that the first attack did occur. Uh, in Vietnam in 1989, I discussed the reality of the first attack with a group of People's Navy officers, including an officer who had been aboard torpedo boat 333 in the attack on the Maddox. Uh, they were quite clear 
on this having been a perfectly genuine battle. It's in the Vietnamese published histories. So it did occur. Oh, yes. And then the United States did have a legitimate reason for attacking Vietnam. Uh, we decided that incident was not good for retaliation, uh, partly because the Americans had fired first. And an incident close to the North Vietnamese coast, close to an island that a covered operation had shelled a couple of nights before, and the Americans fired first, wasn't clearly enough the North Vietnamese fault to make it look good as a case for bombing uh, North Vietnam. The second incident, much farther out to sea, much farther from the Vietnamese coast, and farther south, not nearly as far north in the Gulf of Tonkin, looked better as an excuse for bombing North Vietnam. So we went for the second one, not the first. <clears throat> the Gulf of uh, Tonkin resolution is the first of, uh, it seems like a series of uh, congressional resolutions that have started uh, wars. Have, uh, was it the first one, or were there ones previous to it? Uh, there had been resolutions somewhat similar, although I haven't read up on all the details, for some previous issues in the Taiwan Strait. And there was a congressional resolution about between China and Taiwan that did not trigger a major war, which is one of the reasons I haven't needed to look into it enough to be precise on what had happened. But the fact there had been such resolutions before was one reason the Congress did not think, if we vote for this, there's going to be a war. Well, thank you for your presentation and for the geography that's useful. I have read other places and through various sources that in fact the U.S. was conducting aggressive intelligence operations along the coast of Vietnam since about 1954, but they stepped up significantly in the early period of 1960 to 64. If this indeed was known at the executive branch that our intelligence community, special operations perhaps, and South Vietnamese collaborators were conducting aggressive actions on the coast of North Vietnam, not offshore, but on the shore. Would this not be a reason to accept an attack by the North Vietnamese on the people bringing them these alien attacks, even if the Maddox or Turner Joy were not part of that operation? Because I don't believe that our executive decision makers did not know about the intelligence raids along the coast of North Vietnam at the time? Uh, the, well, first of all, I would take the word intelligence out of most of what you said. Our intelligence operations were not very aggressive. Our covert military attacks are much more appropriately described. And uh, we were conducting intelligence missions of a sort that we would not have been happy if somebody were doing to us. There were U-2 aircraft flying over North Vietnam taking photographs. There were planes orbiting off the coast, listening in on radio communications. Uh, there were occasional DeSoto patrols by U.S. destroyers. That's intelligence gathering. But also, there were covert attacks. And the United States had been training Asian personnel and parachuting them into North Vietnam to see if we could get a guerrilla war going against the North Vietnamese government on its own, uh, on its own territory uh, for a couple of years. Uh, we had been sending guys with scuba gear in the mouths of rivers to attach explosives below the waterline of North Vietnamese Navy vessels moored inside the river mouths. And uh, if you're going to talk about aggressive, I think the word is much more appropriate for those operations than for the intelligence missions. And certainly, they were known at the highest level. They were approved at the highest level. Uh, President Johnson 
was briefed on individual missions, not just we are sending people to attack the North Vietnamese coast, but he was briefed on, on such and such a night, we are sending people to attack this location. He was kept informed in detail. Uh, there was a lot of talk in those days about the CIA as a rogue elephant running operations without the knowledge of the president. I've seen, I see no sign of such a thing anywhere in relation to Tonkin Gulf. With such expenditure uh, of resources as far as military intelligence, uh, do you have any insight into what obviously was an almost complete misunderstanding of cultural intelligence? And this seems to be a pattern. Uh, it happened in Iran in the early 1950s, uh, Vietnam, uh, Iraq. We went in there with understanding practically nothing about the culture. So do you have any insights into how that goes so awry? Ah, very, I think I regard the cause as fairly simple. We're the world's dominant power. We feel that everything in the world is our business. Uh, we aren't interested in all the countries in the world, but we're not willing to not do anything even about the ones that we aren't interested in enough in to bother learning very much. And also, as the world's dominant power, we, saw, we went into Vietnam with a mindset sort of, we are so powerful that we cannot fail. Uh, somebody asked a some people who had been high-level officials in the Johnson administration relatively soon after Johnson left office. Why didn't you consult people who were experts on Vietnam? And they said, hmm, that's a good question. And what they came up with was, it didn't occur to us that success or failure might depend on getting some expert knowledge of the country. Of the country. The American military budget, just what the Pentagon spent each year, was, I think, more than 30 times the gross national product of North Vietnam. So the possibility that in a confrontation between the United States and North Vietnam, it might be the United States that failed. You've got to be kidding. That's preposterous. The question I have deals with the uh, reactions of other players. In other words, um, the ones that weren't immediately at, involved in the incident. For example, what did the Chinese, what did the Russians, what did the North Vietnamese High Command think when they heard the incident? Uh, do they think it was real, that it really happened um, both times? Or do they think, the question immediately that, uh, oh, no way, that, that, that this could not have happened? By far the most interesting is China. Not long after Tonkin Gulf, Chairman Mao explained to Lei Zuan, the head of the North Vietnamese Communist Party, that the Americans had been making an honest mistake, that they had actually thought there had been an attack. And they thought not only that Chinese intelligence was that good, but that a Chinese intelligence officer could get Chairman Mao to believe such a preposterous story. Uh, the silliest I have ever felt in my whole professional career was explaining to officers of the People's Army in Hanoi that the Americans had been making an honest mistake when they bombed North Vietnam in retaliation for an, Ameri for an imaginary incident. I was wondering what was the Vietnamese for, yeah, I bet he believes in a tooth fairy, too. And it weirds me out that Chairman Mao's intelligence officers were able to get him to understand this had been, the Americans had been confused and thought there had been an attack when there hadn't been one. I, everything I've seen indicates that the, that the Vietnam, North Vietnamese actually believed what they said was that this was a deliberate lie 
concocted by the Americans uh, because it was politically useful for them. And they started upping the ante. I think they'd been restraining themselves from, from infiltrating North Vietnamese troops into South Vietnam because they didn't want to be bombed. And they'd been infiltrating South Vietnamese troops into South Vietnam, guys who'd spent a few years in North Vietnam being sent back to South Vietnam. The first regiments of North Vietnamese troops start down the Ho Chi Minh Trail shortly after Tonkin Gulf. And I think it is because they felt, if we don't send North Vietnamese into South Vietnam, the Americans will just lie and say we did and bomb us. If we're going to get bombed for it, we might as well do it. The Russians believed the Americans and thought the attack had been real. Relations between Moscow and Hanoi had almost completely broken down to the point where the Soviet ambassador in Hanoi had got tired of being treated like dirt and gone home to Moscow. And there wasn't a Soviet ambassador in Hanoi. Uh, because of friction between Moscow and Hanoi, where the Russians had been telling the North Vietnamese, cool it, stop pushing so hard in Vietnam. We do not want to trigger a major war. And the North Vietnamese said, if the Russians don't care about South Vietnam, we do care about South Vietnam. And we are not going to cool it. And relations between Moscow and Hanoi had almost completely broken down. And the Russians simply did, didn't believe the, Amer the North Vietnamese when they said, this attack was imaginary. We didn't attack those destroyers on the night, on the night of August 4th. Thank you. Um, do you believe that the um, US Naval Staff decision to, let's say, reassign the Turner Joy to accompany the Maddox was a reaction to the attack on August 2nd? Or would you consider it, was it more, was it already en route, let's just say? Oh, uh, it was a reaction to the attack on uh, August 2nd. It, was, it didn't need to be en route. It was conveniently available. Uh, the, Turner, the, the United States kept an aircraft carrier just south of the Gulf of Tonkin, about, well, about the latitude of Da Nang, off the coast of Vietnam, uh, not far south of where the demilitarized zone separating north from south. The Turner Joy had been assigned as part of the escorting group around that aircraft carrier. So you need, the Americans decided after the August 2nd incident, we shouldn't have one destroyer in the Gulf of Tonkin. We should have two. The Turner Joy was conveniently available right there to go in with the Maddox. All right. Any more questions? Up here in the front. There we go. Front. Do you have any idea if the second attack didn't really happen? What convinced however many sailors on two ships that it did? Uh, I am hesitant to try and pretend I have too much expertise. Uh, the explanations of the, of the radar targets by the guys who were there who have said they, I, I have talked with guys who said, I saw torpedo boats on the radar. I'm not a fool. I could not be mistaken. Those have to have been genuine torpedo boats. The radar was clear and convincing. And I've talked with guys who said, I was looking at the radar, and there were no torpedo boats on the radar, and there could not have been any without them showing on the radar. So as I say, the eyewitnesses are really divided on that, and they're divided in every category. The guys looking at radar screens are split between yes and no. The guys looking with naked eye out in the darkness are split between yes and no. The guys listening to the sonar gear uh, for the sounds of motors of hostile vessels and torpedo motors passing them are split. Uh, but the ones who say it was not torpedo boats, let's see, I've talked with a pilot who is, believes that his plane dipping down low, looking for torpedo boats at low altitude, passing through the beams of the radar was one of the things that the guys on the destroyer were seeing and interpreting as torpedo boats. Uh, there is a strong possibility 
that certain weather conditions can cause seabirds to present a stronger, clearer image on radar than you would normally get from a seabird, that something in humidity conditions can make seabirds show up more clearly on radar. And this is the explanation I like best for what started it. Then there's the question, you can pick up radar returns from the foam on the crest of, broken, of a breaking wave. Uh, then you open fire. First shot you fire goes out, the shell detonates, lifts a spout of water into the air, which produces a great big clear image on the radar. And then you can continue firing, and the image stays because it is being renewed by the explosion of every shell that detonates. And I think that was probably some of it. Uh, but I am not a US Navy veteran. I have never listened to sonar gear. I have never looked at a radar. So I don't want to push my expertise too far. I'm wondering a little bit more about your phrasing honest mistake. If the Johnson administration had prepared a kind of uh, prototype resolution in May, yeah. and, the, and senior officials are saying, hey, we have to escalate or yep. we're, things are going to be lost, then to what extent is finding something that seems to corroborate a pre-existing notion, a pre-existing path, an honest mistake, or something that is, uh, well, we're looking for something, and now we have it, and so we're going to go with it. In other words, we're, you know, you have these, these, these telegrams or, or signals on the night. If they're not looking for something, they might have waited a day or two to try to figure out a little more. If they're if they're um, if they're looking for something, they're not going to wait. If they're not looking for something, then maybe it's honest. But it but it seems a little um, overly generous to call it honest honest mistake, given uh, the, the preconditions of where the U.S. wanted to go. I don't. Well, I try to avoid allowing myself to be influenced by what's generous or what's not, and. You have a whole bunch of little questions with different answers to them. Uh, and I say, honest mistake, meaning that I am pretty sure that when Lyndon Johnson stood up in front of the cameras and announced this, uh, he believed that what he was saying was true. And the fact that after he found out that it had been false, and he was rather annoyed upon discovery that it had been false and said, quote, hell, those dumb, stupid sailors were just shooting at flying fish, and then lied in his memoirs and talked about this as if he still believed it had been real when he'd figured out years before that it had been false. The fact that he's a liar in his memoirs does not save him. It does not keep him from being called making an honest mistake when on the evening of August 4th in front of the TV cameras he believed what he was saying. Uh, almost everybody tells the truth sometimes and lies sometimes. People aren't consistent about that. Who were the dissenters in this era? In this, in 1964-65, were there dissenters who who uh, who was saying, "Let's slow down, let's not go there." Well, uh, the, the, you have to sort out different questions. On the question of was there an attack, uh, hardly anybody in the United States, and nobody who would be considered respectable in the United States expressed doubt that there had been an attack publicly. And uh, very quickly, a bunch of people were saying to each other privately at high levels, this didn't happen. And uh, the, deputy chiefs of, the deputy chiefs of staff for operations of the various armed services 
talking with one another had pretty well had agreed, oh, that was an imaginary incident within days after it occurred. And of course, they do not talk to the press about that. Uh, the deputy director for intelligence at CIA went to the president's foreign intelligence advisory board about three days later and told them this, the, the evidence on this does not look good. It looks, it looks as if this incident did not happen. And what I really want to know is what the NSA guys told the president's foreign intelligence advisory board. Uh, people are much more willing to talk about what CIA says than about what NSA says. And I don't have the knowledge of what NSA said to the president's board the way I do for the deputy director of CIA. But publicly, doubts did not get expressed until a couple of years later. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause for Dr. Edwin Moyes. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events. <laughs>